Welcome, everybody, to episode 136 of the MetaBeelers 2 podcast, which features myself, Ben. And David. And tonight... Tonight. Tonight is Christmas, or Christmas with the Eighth Doctor and Charlie Pollard. Yes. It's a very special Christmas edition of the MetaBeelers 2 podcast. Um, we're, we're talking about a Christmas big finish. Yeah, it's Christmas time here on the MetaBeelers 2, and we are going to visit... Big Finish Main Range number 29, The Chimes of Midnight, written Ooh. by Rob Shearman. Mm. And this came out in February of 2002 for A Christmas Story. Which is weird, because yeah. you'd expect them to release it at Christmas. And actually, hang on, I'm going down some rabbit holes here, but um, we've actually got three Big Finish releases here, okay, in swift mm-hmm. succession. Right. Vader's from Mars, which is yes. a Halloween episode. Yeah. And that was recorded in January 2001 right. and released in January 2002. Right. Times of Midnight, that is a Christmas episode. That was also recorded in January 2001, but not released until February 2002. The next release from Big Finish, Seasons of Fear, is a New Year's Eve episode. <laughs> and that was recorded again in January 2001. Still not released until March 2002. So it's weird that they decided to do like a Halloween, Christmas and New Year's Eve themed ones and then not actually release them Mm -hmm. on those dates. Though I guess in some ways what it does when you listen to all three in quick succession, you get, you know, a kind of a holiday, end of year holiday Mm -hmm. thing going on. And the one they released in December, or must have been 2001, was The One Doctor, which was uh, Colin Baker and Bonnie Langford's story. So they could have conceivably, uh, you would think, kind of shuffled the order around if they wanted Chimes of Midnight coming out in December. That that could have been possible. But uh, Yeah. I demand Nicholas Briggs and Gary Russell to contact the Metabilis 2 directly <laughs> and tell us what the hell was going on with their release schedule. <laughs> that would be uh, inside. Does Benjamin Cook cover that in the big book they, of weird, Big weirdly, Finish? Did, I mean, I'm, I'm getting these stats from the big book of Big Finish, the big, mm-hmm. big book of Finish, Finish book. <laughs> but uh, he, he doesn't cover that, Benjamin Cook. He doesn't cover it. Uh-huh. It's a serious... I mean, I, I, have to, I have to say, it is... It, it, have you seen this book? It is actually huge. I tried to get a copy of it, and Ooh, it is out valuable? of print and expensive to get. So I punted really? on that. Yeah. Oh, so wow. you, you are the font. You're the keeper of this tome I'm like for the, the Metabilos like, too. I'm like the keeper of the Matrix. You something. are. You yeah. Are. Uh, if the Matrix was a large book... By Benjamin Cook. By Benjamin Cook about <laughs> the Doctor Who, the new audio adventures. If that was the Matrix, then I would be the keeper of the Matrix. I just did buy from uh, Milk Publishing uh, yeah. Justice, which is the uh, behind-the-scenes stories of the audiovisuals. Oh, cool. That sounds and interesting. So that is en route from England. So Ooh, I plan to look at that over the Christmas halls. I'm guessing you have the shiny disc version of this. I have the download. Do you have the actual physical? I have the actual physical disc. My actual physical disc is signed by India Fisher, um, uh, Juliet. I'm going to say Juliet Bravo, but it's not. It's Juliet. Juliet Warner. Yeah. And uh, Rob Sherman. Ooh, that's quite the hall of autographs. I know. <laughs> Luckily, they're all still alive. I think. Um, yeah. Certainly, Rob Sherman's still alive because mm-hmm. I've been conversing with him on Facebook today about uh, how horrible the election was last night. 
yeah. last week. Sorry, sorry. This isn't this isn't actually recorded live, everybody. Um, <laughs> uh, so uh, yeah, I, I don't think I had it signed in person. I think this was a period. Was I living in America at this time when it was released again? We just said when it would be. No, I hadn't moved to the states yeah. then. But I think I was getting them signed and sent to me from the Who shop. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. No, sorry, from from Tenth Planet in Barking were releasing these and then um, then signing them. Amusingly, uh, Juliet Baker. So uh, Julia, sorry, India Fisher has signed it. Lots of love, India. Mm-hmm. Rob Shearman has just signed Rob Shearman and then had done a little cross as like oh, a kiss. Not lots of love from Rob. No, yeah. but Juliet Baker has has, has, has written tick tock exclamation mark Juliet and then a little cross. Mm. Well, so she's really getting into the really getting to the story. Tick tock, yeah. Bing Bong. And there's a believe that this has one of the more infamous errors on early big finish cd cover designs indeed or... <laughs> it does if you if you read if you read the back of the actual cd it says it says doctor in big letters um starring paul mcgann in the chimes of midnight written by robert shearman directed by barnaby edwards with india fisher as charlie mm-hmm. and then the first line of the blurb is halloween 1938 <laughs> And then it goes, "'Twas the night before Christmas." So obviously um, they cut cut and pasted from the previous release, which I think also was directed by... uh, Was it directed by... No, um, Mark Gatiss directed that. Oh, right, okay. So I don't know why they cut and pasted it wrong. Um, Hang on, let me look in my big book, see whether it mentions it at all. Oh, here you go. Here you go. There you go. It says here... The CD, or I've just said this, but anyway, okay, in the trivia section, it says the CD back cover blurb begins, Halloween 1938, etc., etc. The first sentence was left over from the previous release, Invaders from Mars, blah, blah, blah. The mistake was Gary Russell's. Ooh. So, Gary. You know. Take your shame. He he's landed on his feet though. He's fallen upward. He's he's in charge of the animation for Fury from the Deep. Exactly. I, I was gonna say. I mean, <laughs> I, I hoped he would have got fired for that blunder. Um, but so uh, so not. I think on the uh, DVD cover he should put. Uh, There's no such thing as Macra. <laughs> <laughs> Be like, how can you tell if it's a Gary Russell joint? It's because he's he's again screwed up the back cover back cover blurb. Uh. That would be that'd be priceless. So um, maybe I mean I'll maybe I'll give you. You know, a, you know what? He's what? probably going to be at Gallifrey, Gallifrey One this February. Awesome. Maybe I'll bring along my copy <laughs> of the Chimes of Midnight and get him to sign it. Or wait okay, to I'll, correct it. I'll bring on. I'll, I'll bring along my copy of Invaders from Mars and get him to sign <laughs> it. Oh uh, goodness. Um. So I mean, I could, I could, we could kick off with some trivia from my yeah. big book. Yeah, that'd be good. Oh, I have one bit of trivia. Okay, so right. I have one piece, and I, I've read this somewhere. Uh, w- one of uh, Rob Shearman's previous previous stories was the Holy Terror with uh, Frobisher and Frobisher. Yep, yep, yep. Colin Baker, uh, a pretty good story. And uh, Rob uh, teased that he was going to call this the Chimes of Midnight, the Holly Terror. Oh, <laughs> interesting. But he opted for the classic title of the chimes of midnight chimes of midnight yeah. i believe it's a it's a movie also yeah it sounds like it's probably a movie yeah so hang on um here's some just random trivia um robert shearman modeled edward grove the evil house spoiler mm-hmm. alert on his own house which is large and victorian so that's a bit of trivia mm-hmm. and the other bit of trivia is i'm really not that fond of plum puddings admit shearman 
which is weird because basically every other line is is about plum puddings. Admit Sherman, the writer originally had Mrs. Baddeley asking Edith to take the plum pudding out of the oven. But of course, as any as everybody knows, plum puddings are steamed, not baked. So the line was changed at the director's request. So that's some actual trivia. Here's some more serious stuff. So apparently, according to this, um, Robert Sherman had a horrible time writing this. Absolutely horrible. Hated writing it because he kind of double booked himself. He was supposed to be writing a play for Alan Akebourne at the same time mm-hmm. and basically had to get them both delivered at the same moment um, and found it very, very <laughs> difficult to kind of separate the two. The original kind of brief for this was... Um, well, here you go. The Chimes of Midnight it was initially planned as the first play of the 2002 Eighth Doctor season, but Gary Russell swapped it with Invaders from Mars. Maybe that's where the confusion comes from because he wanted the first release to be a light-hearted one, ideally by Rob Shearman. Something quite fluffy and whoish, and this is from an email um, from, two, from July 2000. Something quite fluffy and whoish that right at the end crashes back down to Earth with the realisation that something is wrong with Charlie. Hmm. The Doctor realises the web of time has caught up with them, entropy setting in the galaxy is going to hell, etc. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess it's not that light-hearted. I guess it's a little bit light-hearted. Um, again, it says here that it's, it was supposed to be a cross between, or Rob Shearman wanted it to be a cross between Upstairs, Downstairs, and Sapphire and Steel. It definitely has a Sapphire and Steel vibe to this. Yeah, I, I, I'm going to have to admit to like a nerd sin here. I've never watched Sapphire and Steel. Oh, really? Okay, I've have only you? picked up I picked up uh, Dribbles and Bobs on YouTube. Yeah, I mean so it, that's that's yeah. It, I'm, it must be available on DVD, right, or something. I would assume so. Yeah. I, I never splurged for it. The, yeah. the interesting thing about the title, and I'm wondering if this coming off of the Orson Welles connection with Invaders of Mars, there was an Orson Welles movie called The Chimes at Midnight, oh. which is about uh, uh, the UK title was Falstaff. But it's, uh, it's a 1965 film with uh, starring Orson Welles, The Chimes, uh, the chimes, of bin- uh, chimes at Midnight. So I, I wonder if this was if if that at all triggered a renaming of it rather than the holly terror or not (laughs) i don't know i'm speed reading through this again to see whether i can pick out whether there was something around the titling Mm -hmm. um not really other than the fact that um originally um it was supposed to be a lot more kind of time shifty um that they'd start out in uh, kind of Victorian times, and then it they then then it would they move forward in time to like not Christmas Eve nineteen forty, mm-hmm. um, and then it would be Christmas Eve nineteen sixty five, so that was original part of it. Oh, here's something fun. Here you go. So, um, Shearman finished the Eightborn Commission on the second of November and emailed Alan Barnes two weeks later. Alan Barnes being the ed- script editor, announcing that he'd finished part one of the Chimes of Midnight, which which had only made him realise that he had seventy five percent left to write. Shearman told Barnes that writing the dialogue feels as slow and unnatural as pulling teeth with a blunt spatula, and the storyline <laughs> seems to make no sense, have no point and no pace. Huh. I liked, I liked, this is, and this is Ben Cook interviewing Rob, um, I like to keep things fresh when I write, says Robert Shearman, so that I can surprise myself and therefore surprise the audience. That's very laudable. I always have a fail-safe ending vaguely in mind, but I've rarely ever used it. But I wrote chimes so quickly that I had no failsafe at all. I just hoped that by part four, I'd think of something. That was an unnerving and miserable process, I can tell you. 
So we started out writing this without actually knowing how it was going to end. Hmm. Which I think it actually, uh, I mean, let's actually talk about the the, the play itself. Um, yeah. Works pretty well, in fact. It's an amazing piece of writing with all the adversity that uh, and the double booking that Shearman had. This is brilliant. This is a really effective uh, audio Ghost drama. Story. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's, and it's and it's and I think as we've said before, you know, one of the great things about an English Chris British I don't know why I'm supposed to call my country anymore at this point. Uh, the thing about a British Christmas um, is that it's a it's a it's a it's a season of ghosts. Um, you know, before Halloween turned up and ruined everything, right. Christmas time was when you tell ghost stories, which is why, of course, you know, a Christmas Carol has like a bunch of ghosts in it. Uh-huh. rather than like santa or something which i guess right. it would have been um uh so you know it's entirely appropriate to have a christmas story that is kind of a ghost story and you know and again it started the, the, i think what was a, one of the things that's effective for me for this episode or this story is that you're never quite sure well certainly until it starts resolving itself, you're never quite sure like who the ghosts are because Charlie and the Doctor start out kind of being ghosts. They do, yeah. And then the inhabitants of the house then become ghostly. Um, mm-hmm. And then the people upstairs, like, you know, the Lord the Lord and the Lady, whoever is, is upstairs in the upstairs-downstairs scenario, they become ghosts because you never find out who they are. And then in the end, it's the house itself that is right. the, the kind of the ghost. Spoiler yeah. alert. Yeah, yeah. The thing with the story, it reminded me, it kept reminding me of things, but it was always a fresh take on them. It reminded me like of the uh, fourth Doctor story of the the face of evil, or it would remind me of much later story with uh, Gaiman's uh, The Doctor's Wife. There's always aspects of familiarity with this. A lot of a lot of the time shifty, the time paradoxes reminded me much of a Moffat writing, but it always I mean for this is this is a story that's 20 years more than 20 years or 20 years old almost. Right, right. And it seems very fresh and this is the first time this was my first listening for this podcast of this oh really you 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 hadn't heard this before no so this is goodness okay this is an amazing story and i think it holds together really well and putting it in a place in time here in december of 2019 the the thing that struck me the most about it was the whole commentary through Sherman's writing about class and then with the, like you mentioned, upstairs, downstairs classes and how, right, how right. Charlie is of the upper class and the doctor is part of the upper class and then you have the, the um, I guess, the servant class or the lower class downstairs with the washerwoman. Uh, scullery the, maid. The scullery maid, the ladies maid, the cook, and the butler. But there's hierarchies in that too, and it's just not. It this seems really to be focused in on the stratification of English society. I'm now now feeling cumbered to defend English society. I mean, I think you know. I mean, the, the stratification of of a house. I, right. I, I I I would have read it more of in that. Okay. Um, you know, I mean, at that, I mean, you know, that that kind of Edwardian era house, you know, a grand house, mm-hmm. as in kind of, you know, upstairs, downstairs, or you know, Downton Abbey, or or whatever nonsense you want to kind of describe it to, um, you know, it's 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 stratified kind of like the military, or you know, or like a business. You know, there are mm-hmm. 
the people who do jobs, who report to other people, who report to other people, who report to other people. And of course, you know, the lowest possible level on the rung is the scullery maid because mm-hmm. A, they're female and B, all you do all day is clean the dishes. Right. And that is your only job. You work in the scullery, which is where the dirty dishes are. But yeah, and I think, I, you know, I, it's, it's, it speaks nicely to me because obviously, you know, Charlie as is clear by her kind of status in the first in the first episode that she appears uh, which obviously you know has bearing on 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 this episode is you know a member of the upper classes right and i think they treat that that, that relationship is actually quite well handled between charlie and um edith mm-hmm. as people who are completely divided by class mm-hmm. a child of the the master of the house master and mistress of the house would never be able to have any kind of meaningful friendship relationship with the scullery maid. As I said, the scullery maid was literally the lowest of the low. So, yeah. Mm. Mm. So Edith came across, I think, as very sympathetic. And it's almost as if she was in love with this young, well, of Charlie, this young woman who right. showed just a modicum of kindness to her that she would smile at her or remember right. her name. Right. And I, I don't know if Sherman had a, a, a bigger idea of uh, social commentary but it's really sad that edith as the cook when when charlie would have died on the r101 killed herself because that was the one person in her life that showed her any any kind of kindness and from charlie's perspective she was just being polite and you get the impression that she barely remembered edith as the cook right 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 it's that that whole uh asymmetric relationship of one one person feeling so strongly intensely that this was uh, you know a, a life of servitude and this was the one person that they were serving that was at least kind that when they lost that person right. it was all despair and that despair fed into the house uh, 22 Edward Grove to become alive with the time paradox, but it was feeding off the despair of Edith uh, throughout her life. And it was just picking off pieces like the bullying of the butler or right. the, uh, the fling uh, with the, with, with the, chauffeur. with the chauffeur. Yeah. Right. And, and then with, with the cook and then with the scullery maid relationship, how Edith as a scullery maid wanted to become the cook and how right. uh, and and how the cook didn't you know saw that as competition, Mrs. Right. Batterly, and wanting to get the plum pudding recipe. So it was just the the house was cherry picking uh, just the the torment, the anguish of Edith throughout her life to feed on these two hours to to bring itself into being. And the story has a happy ending, but it is a Christmas tragedy. It's what I think saves it is the happy ending. If this was just, if it didn't end the way it did, this would be almost unbearable to to listen to. Right, but, right. But 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 by by that final scene with the doctor saving Charlie from killing herself, and then Charlie saving Edith for killing herself, and they're both alive, and then the the ending with 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 them going back and basically doing just a little teeny bit to build up Edith's self esteem. It salvages what otherwise would be really a, a pretty brutal testament on the life of these servants in this house. Right, 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 right. Which again, you know, is the, this is this is this is the life in in service. Um, 
Right. You know, and um, you know, we get a very rosy. In some ways, you know, we kind of kind of get a rosy impression of that from things like Downton Abbey, and I, and again, you know, I, I think obviously it would it's it wildly varied from house to house. Um, mm-hmm. I, and I have to say, I'm making some of this up because I know very little about the history of domestic service in Britain in this era. Um, but I think it could be pretty horrific. Mm. You know, this was your job, and you lived where your job was. And you did your job until it killed you. And, you know, in terms of kind of advancing from scullery maid to anything else, the only way that you'd be able to get out of that is by marrying someone. And you wouldn't be able to marry anyone, you know, who was of any kind of a of a higher social status than yourself. Hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, I, that to me was what really stood out and struck me on it. With going back to the original uh, statement that Sherman had such a hard time writing it, I don't think you can tell that listening to it. And I had listened to it now twice twice through. Right, right. It really seems to be well-crafted the way that he sets it in the Edwardian period. Charlie wants to be an Edwardian adventurous. Just the whole uh, bits with Cluedo where the murders right. are with... <laughs> <laughs> you know, knives and blunt pokers and... Uh, yeah, that's and hilarious, yeah. Always, whenever yeah. there is a death, the, the servants are saying it must have been a suicide, so it keeps feeding back into that this was a suicide and then just right, brilliant right. bits of writing with the doctor concluding that the murders themselves are the red herring and it, it, it works I think really well where the house then hears overhears bits of dialogue and then changes their roles. And it just fits well within the story of Charlie Pollard and it fits well within the character development of the eighth doctor. And it shows really well the affection that the McGann doctor has for Charlie. And I don't get the impression that Shearman was struggling writing this it seems like all the pieces fit really well together not with not only within the story but within the whole eighth doctor arc so far of big finish well let me let me let me read again from the big book of big finish and uh, it's the final paragraph of the section here um robert shearman was thrilled with the finished product a bit of a dream come true he admits i'd so convinced myself that it would be reviled I went to a convention on the day of release, and that's when I first got to hear it. I listened to it on the tube, that's Subway, um, home with with a tremendous feeling of pride. It had been hell, but suddenly I knew I had nothing to be ashamed of. The only criticism from some listeners was that the story was too similar to the Holy Terror. I suppose, thematically, there are similarities, he acknowledges. But the themes of reality versus fantasy dominate most of my work outside of Doctor Who. I don't mean to sound bitter, but out in the theatre world, critics like to see that you're working your way through developing themes. They don't see it as a sign that you're repeating yourself, but you think that your subject matter is worth analysing from different angles and perspectives. Which I think is a very smart comment, actually. Yeah. I mean, Rob Shearman is a serious dramatist. Mm-hmm. Um, he's also like a huge Doctor Who fan. And I think he's right. You know, I think, you know, genre, genre people like us go like, oh, it's just, just the same as the last one. But again, you know, he, he uh, uh, references, you know, being commissioned by Alan Akebourne to write a play. Well, if you look at Alan Akebourne's plays, you know, they are not exactly the same, but, you know, they are examining themes throughout his career. And that's how, that's what serious dramatists do, you know. 
Mm-hmm. Um, you yeah. know, Harold Pinter's plays are basically all the same. That doesn't mean he's a bad playwright. It just means he's interested in the same things. He's he has has these uh, themes that he wants to explore, and I think I enjoyed this one much more than I enjoyed Holy Terror. To be honest with you, I think this. Uh, by revisiting these themes of what's reality, what's fantasy, again, he surpassed what he did with Holy Terror. I think this is definitive. This is a really, really timeless classic of Doctor Who, and this might be the best eighth Doctor story up to this point that we've heard now from Big Finish. It's really, uh, it's really a classic, and it, like you said, he had a sense of pride coming from this convention, listening to it on the tube. It's well deserved. It came together through uh, uh, Barnaby Edwards' direction, I think, as should be called out. He really, yep. well directed, really definitely. gave the actors stuff to work with. Uh, uh, if Alan Barnes was doing script editing for it, he really tied this in together. All all the Big Finish team came together and um, on this recording and came up with this. And it is, I think, deservedly heralded as a masterpiece of Big Finish, early Big Finish. Yeah, and I think, I mean, let's, let's, I'll, I'll just read another section from the book. I mean, um, Sherman says that he, you know, he really enjoyed writing for The Eighth Doctor. He was very nervous. Mm-hmm. to do this um, because he hadn't enjoyed the TV movie. So he was kind of, you know, worried about writing with that character, but he had enjoyed writing for it. Um, Barnaby Edwards was nervous because, uh, you know, it's a, it's a small, it's a small production that takes place in basically, you know, a few rooms of one house. Right. So, you know, the, the actors were absolutely key, were absolutely key mm-hmm. um, as was, and this will interest you as was sound design. Yeah. Um, so here we go. Both Rob Shearman and I knew that the sound design was going to be of paramount importance, says Barnaby Edwards, mm-hmm. because the oral landscape of Chimes is severely limited, four rooms right. and a larder. Consequently, Andy and I, Andy's sound designer, spent, um, Andy Hardwick, bleh, Hardwick um, spent a considerable amount of time perfecting the different atmospheres for each of the different rooms. I wanted each room to reflect in some way the quality of its habitual occupant the damp unloved scullery represented edith the busy bustling kitchen mrs baddeley the stiff formal butler's pantry shaughnessy and the drafty hall with its blazing hearth represented the mixed affections of mary and frederick the clock had to be heard beneath almost every scene edwards asked sherman to draw a house to draw a floor plan of the house so this all fits into you know rob sherman modeling uh this this house uh, upon his own house <laughs> and Hardwick used that to determine how loud the grandfather clock should sound in each of the room. Mm-hmm. It really was one of the most monstrously complex sound designs I've ever come across, says the director. Thank heaven for Andy's genius. Without his sterling work, The Chimes of Midnight would have been a horse of a very different kidney. Well, it it shows. and Yeah, definitely shows. Definitely. Very, very subtle. It's the sound design and the musical cues by Russell Stone all work in concert together. And it's very evocative of this Edwardian house. And yes, all the rooms do have a slightly different uh, sound to it. Inside the console room in the TARDIS also is the is the sixth room in the story it also has a different different uh sound design it all works yep. really well and it's not it's not so loud that you can't hear the dialogue or the subtleties of the performances it just is like uh, edward says it's it's a brilliant sound design and hardwick 
really did himself proud with this. Well, if you want a bit more from the book, um, just to touch on your point about the music. So the final element to be slotted into place was the music. I see I've scribbled discordant cellos for death on the top of page one, laughs Russell Stone, flicking through his copy of the script. Um, Most of the score, if not all of it, was written at a tempo of either 60 or 120 beats per minute. That way I knew that whatever I wrote would underscore or be offset with Andy's ticking clock sounds, Mm. which I think is Mm -hmm. super smart that they, you know, that actually the music and the clock sound, the clock sounds, which of course are super important throughout the entire Mm -hmm. production in some way kind of fit, fit together. Mm -hmm. So, And in the crafting, the story itself, Sherman really comes up with good cliffhangers for all three episodes that from, the, the first episode where the house is uh, mocking them with the, with the Christmas cracker riddle, where, the, where, where when it's a door, not a door, when, when, when it's raspberry jam, when it's, when it's a jar with, ra- or, uh, yeah, when it is a raspberry jar. Right. But then with the doctor then says, some mysteries are best left unsolved. The clock strikes midnight and the doctor says too late i think whatever was keeping us out has decided to let us in and then we hear edith scream and that that is a great cliffhanger and then each each subsequent episode i won't go through them but each subsequent episode has really really good cliffhangers and the one that i thought was the most effective is where it seems like They've escaped. I think this is the end of episode oh, three. Oh, yeah, that is good. Yeah. Where yep. they're going off good. in the TARDIS, but then they realize they're still in the house. And that... The house has come with it, them, yeah. Yeah, so as a listener, you're you're totally faked out by it. And then they, then they have the real cliffhanger and then the theme. And it's clever. And you haven't seen this before. Or I haven't heard this before in a big finished production. So I was very appreciative of all the cliffhangers in this. The, this this story yeah yeah no you're 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 right and i think you know the acting is good you know you've got a very small cast and you know they're not a very small cast that's playing lots of characters they're a very small cast that's playing a very small number of characters who are basically themselves yes uh, well, they're only playing one character each i guess is what i mean and, and interestingly enough most of these character most of these character actors do not do other big finishes there's i think only Lennox Greaves, who plays Shaughnessy the butler, has like a half dozen different ones. Most of the others, like Juliet Warner, who plays Mary, she does mostly, uh, she does one other big finish Doctor Who one, but then it's uh, a Bernie Summerfield, uh, some Sarah Janes. It's not, it's not like a lot of uh, repeating voices. So that, that's one of the things about the cast of uh, Big Finish is sometimes you hear the same voices right. and stuff. Yeah, you, do. you don't you don't get that with the Chimes of Midnight. It's uh, uh, like the, the actor who played Edith, uh, Louise Rolfe. She was only ever in the Chimes of Midnight, for example, yeah, yeah, for Big Finish. Yeah, so yeah. it's a, it's very distinctive. Um, I think they double it up a little bit. Um, I think the some of them yeah uh, some of them do uh double up for the next release as well so they're in seasons of fear mm-hmm. which is the number 30 release yeah um but yes no you're right there's two things i think with big finish one of which you know you get the big finish players someone like toby longworth um you know he's a great voice actor and can do accents and all that kind of stuff but from time to time it's like oh yeah it's toby longworth again mm-hmm. or you'll get especially in kind of late period 
big finish so like you know current big finish you know they've got the ability to attract big stars right uh, the one i just listened to the other day which is the silurian candidate i beg your pardon it wasn't the silurian candidate um the 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 two-parter um the eightfold truth and the World Wide web which was the spoiler alert return of the metabilis to spiders um has got stephen moore in it um and obviously you know that was kind of sad because stephen moore's just died but you know he has such a distinctive voice mm-hmm. um, that it's like oh yeah it's Stephen Moore and it's awesome to hear Stephen Moore because he's a great actor. Right. But you know sometimes that can kind of take you out of the action mm-hmm. in a way that actually genre fans like us always kind of enjoy. It's like oh yes we know that guy <laughs> he's in that other thing. Right. I mean it is always super exciting certainly in these early big finishes to hear David Tennant turn up because mm-hmm. of course when he was recording things like Colditz um, for big finish he wasn't anyone at all mm-hmm. that famous he was mm-hmm. just like a scottish actor who came in and did scottish people or other people if he, if he wanted to lose the scotch but um it is uh it's refreshing in this to have some people who we haven't heard who we haven't heard from before yes yes and it yes. it all combines to make this story very special I think Sherman's dark humor uh, really is apparent in in parts of the story, and uh, it's a it's a ghost story, but it's uh, it's more it's almost a horror story in many ways because of what's yeah. what's going on. But some of the lines are really funny. Like there's two that really really I think stood out for me. One was when they're first discussing Edith for, uh, drowning herself in her wash basin yes. and the doc- <laughs> and the doctor says it's impossible and then mrs batterly says well that's edith she was a very stupid girl doctor she might not have known it was impossible when she did it so i thought you know <laughs> funny that that's pretty good and then the bit when they discover frederick's body right so the doctor sets it up saying and from the condition of frederick's body i say he was knocked down by a car driving at great speed and then mary goes and she goes oh freddie to be killed by your own chrysler or bentley whatever it was (laughs) which ties back to the whole bit of uh, the house not knowing what year it was and chrysler's and bentley's and stuff and frederick's confusion of what he was driving because the house wouldn't know it just that that was a laughing moment it's also a nice callback to the the invaders from mars and the whole lamborghini incident yeah um, that you know that there is a like oh hang on there's you know i mean i guess mm-hmm. it's i think it's better it's better done here yes um, but yeah I, th- yeah that kind of resonated with me mm-hmm. and then following that then then the whole bit where the doctor agrees yes it must have been a suicide or the butler says this must have been a suicide and the doctor says at finally at this point yes i imagine so it's quite clear that frederick brought the car into the house ran himself over with it and then put it back outside before he finally expired and rob shearman's dark sense of humor i think is really evident throughout this uh bits and those are those are just a couple lines that just really 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 stood out for me i think right 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 yeah, no, it's 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 a it's and it's a great it's a great atmospheric tale. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's um this period. And um, we I think we were going into a period, especially on the Eighth Doctor adventures mm-hmm. with Big Finish, when they start they go into a different universe. I think after Zagreus, um, and that actually became pretty tedious mm-hmm. um, because basically all the stories became like this, as far as I can remember. I haven't listened to them 
again for ages because at all actually because I didn't really enjoy them to start with um there becomes a lot of kind of like ooh mysterious voices mm-hmm. is the villain which I guess in some ways makes sense because this is an audio medium so all the all 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 villains are mysterious voices because there are no visuals um and um I I think I think actually after that they kind of got into a better rhythm with we need to have things that are slightly more action packed mm. and a little less atmospheric um, this, I think, the atmosphere was just perfect. Mm-hmm. And I think possibly what happened is, you know, I think the success of Chimes of Midnight encouraged them to think, well, we need to do more of this sapphire and steely kind of stuff. Mm. When actually, I think it's, I think you need to apply this uh, really quite lightly to make sense, in my opinion. Yeah, every episode can't be Blink, for example. Yes, which is, yeah, which of course it is nowadays. But yeah. Yeah. Well, it's it's the curse of Earthshock where... Earthshock was such a great success, and then J and T kept uh, wanting to try to repeat that, and hired on Sayward, right. and et cetera. And that's uh, yeah. sometimes stories are better off as one-offs rather than being trying to repeat. <laughs> right, exactly, exactly. So, the, sorry, carry on. So, yeah, there's just other other gems. I think uh, visual images or lines that Shearman worked into it, and just a line that he gave Charlie after the Doctor and Charlie secure the watch, the fob watch from the butler of uh, when they're looking at the second hand and how it just is uh, frozen in time and just quivering. And then all of a sudden it's, uh, Charlie goes, it's taken fright, doctor. Time has taken fright and is running away. And this, the second hand is just spinning faster and faster. It's, it's a great visual image, but it's a great, it's a great uh, metaphor that Charlie is using that time is afraid because the house is afraid. And just this whole playing of time in this time loop, which isn't, which isn't a new concept in Doctor Who, but it's, no, a, not it's, a, it's a very unique idea of this house being able to fold in time and uh, by the very, very end, concluding that it can just run the two seconds of the chimes of midnight over and over and over again to have perpetual life but everyone's going to be living these two seconds over and over again like like you said we're it it starts out as a ghost story but it is the more i think about this this is this is a true mental horror cerebral horror story it's not the deaths aren't horrible everyone comes back to life but it's it's the concepts that are being explored by Sherman in this are really pretty grim in in so many ways. Yeah, it's, and in some ways, actually, I'm thinking about it now. I mean, it's kind of reminiscent of kind of aspects of Nigel Neal, uh, you know, the kind of great kind of sci-fi fantasy dramatist on British TV. Uh, you know, he did this uh, drama called The Stone Tape, um, which was kind of about ghosts and, you know, how, you know, houses can record... Um, can record traumatic events and then replay them, and that's what ghosts are. Um, and I think this is this is definitely taken from Neil. And also, mm-hmm. um, uh, there was oh, I can't yeah, the doctor, the called? doctor name checks that or uh, references almost that concept. I think in in the story. Yeah, yeah. And there's another Neil one which I think is called The Road. Damn, I wish I could remember. Anyway, where it's set in uh, in the in the 17th century. And there's ghosts or there's screaming on the road and no one can work out, you know, why this horrific, you know, occurrence is happening um, until uh, what's revealed at the end of the play. And sadly, the, the, the play is lost now. Mm. Um, so uh, it was one of the one of the plays that was wiped by the BBC is, 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 <laughs> is what you realize is that um, 
what the what the people of the 18th century are experiencing is actually a nuclear war taking place in the early 1970s um which has then replayed itself back through time Oof. because it's such an and such an horrific event and that is what is being kind of echoed back through time so this idea of you know there being a kind of a timelessness to a horror and also a uh, a way that horror can a, a horrific act can kind of breed its own life out of itself i think is you know is very very current um well not very very current but i mean i think you know it's a theme in in certain aspects of kind of sort of english fantasy drama and i think you know um what the great thing about rob shearman is he can take kind of genre concepts like this and really make them breathe again and be original and be exciting and this is what this is what the chimes at midnight is yes it is it's it's really a special story and i'm i'm just amazed and i you really uh, liked it well yeah i think of rob shearman's works you know dalek is also a pretty phenomenal story um i love the maltese penguin i think that really plays well with, yeah, it's a lovely one. With, uh, with the whole idea of Frobisher. Sadly, Frobisher hasn't returned to Big Finish. He's far past due to, to return. Absolutely. They need to give Frobisher back. Jeez, come on. Come on, guys. Get, get, get it together. <laughs> and then Jubilee also, which is uh, Dalek was a, a riff on Jubilee. But those are all really, really good stories that I have listened to or watched of, of Shearman's. And I think it's been a missed opportunity. And I know he said he was afraid to return under RTD because Dalek was so perfect that he wouldn't be able to live up for it. But I think with his uh, CV of Doctor Who works, I think that might have been an unfounded concern. I think he really is one of the more brilliant writers to uh, pen for Doctor Who. Very, very intelligent writer. And very compassionate um a huge amount of empathy uh he's a he's a perfect dramatist and uh, as i said you know i'm 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 only facebook friends with him rather than actual friends <laughs> but you know he he has that the, he has that compassion on social media as well which mm-hmm. is which is kind of nice to yeah. nice to see so yeah or yeah. read or whatever yeah. mm-hmm. that's always nice to find out so final verdict Times of midnight. It's it's a it's a it's a it's a winner for us. Yep. Yes. And uh, at least for Christmas 2020, it'll slip back into the rotation for listening for me. I think it's a perfect Excellent. perfect story for Christmas time, and it's it's probably my favorite uh, Doctor Who Christmas related story at this point. Ah, high praise indeed. High high praise indeed for the Chimes of Midnight by Rob Sherman. Excellent. Right. Well, thank you for listening to episode 136 of the Metabulous 2. I have been talking with Ben. I have been chatting with David. And until next time. Happy Christmas, everybody. At a rough estimate, 250 years. There could have been other buildings on these foundations back in time. Yes. Genuine antiques? I'd say most of them. Some vibrations. And a surname, Jardine. Old French. 
Old names, an old house, lots of old things, lots of old, old echoes. A pressure point, then? Could well be. Could well be it. You know so much about us. We do, yes. Then perhaps you'd like to say who you are, what your names are. My name is Sapphire and my friend's name is Steele. There are lots of clocks in this house. Yes, my father collects them, makes them work. So why aren't they working now? They do work. They all stop when... Yes? Well, just before it happened. <laughs>